Welcome to the seventh edition of Transformation Talks. My name's David Lancefield, and in this series of podcasts, I speak to a diverse group of people who've led, lived through, or studied major change in organizations. My hope is that we give you an idea or two that you can use in whatever aspect of transformation you're involved in, whether that's in relation to a new purpose, strategy, aspects of innovation, culture, or leadership. I'm thrilled to welcome Linda Grattan and Bushan Zeti. Linda is a professor of management practice at London Business School, the founder of the Hotspots Movement, which runs innovative and a long-running future of work consortium, a prestigious prize-winning author of eight and soon to be nine books, and one of the world's leading authorities in all things management and work. I'm really looking forward to getting an exclusive on what you're going to publish in your book as we, as we run through this. Bushan is the joint global leader of PwC's People and Organization practice, a Brit based in New York and one of the leading lights in the professional services world in all things work and HR, focusing on the heady world of financial services organizations. He's a recent cover model in HR Digest and a global citizen, having lived and worked in Europe, Asia and the US. Linda and Bushan know each other very well, having worked on our flagship program of thought leadership in PwC the most recent report being preparing for tomorrow's workforce today. Welcome to you both. I want to talk today about the shift, the transition to the future of work, the future of the workplace. We all know we're moving to a more fluid, flexible, multi-stage and maybe fragile life. Um, most execs I speak with talk eloquently about what it looks like, but actually struggle to transform the organisation to create it. They know they need to prepare to the future right now, but many don't or can't. And indeed, Linda, you said in your book, change will be piecemeal. It will be slower, lumpier, and more tentative than many would hope for. Gosh, why is that? And what gets in the way? Well, I'm, I wanted to really start by just, you know, talking a little bit about that shift. Um, in our last book, Andrew Scott and I said, oh, this is a bit like the Industrial Revolution. Um, which actually was pretty brutal, by the way, for lots of people. Lots of people, lots and lots of losers, as well as some winners. Our view now is it's greater. The transition that we are all going through, every single one of us, is greater than the Industrial Revolution. And here's why. Um, firstly, obviously, huge technological changes. And that means that every single one of us, every one of us, will have to either upskill do what we do differently, better, or reskill, find something completely different to do. And this is your point, David, about transitions. Mm. Secondly, we're going to live a lot longer. I mean, I'm now that I'm going down to the gym every three days, I'm going to be here until I'm at least 100. Thanks for that, You're giving us a nudge. <laughs> and um, if you live to 100, then the three stages of you know education, work, and retirement look ridiculous and you have to think of it as being a multi-stage more transitions and then finally something really fascinating is happening in families and communities uh, and that means that you know the way that you thought your family was going to work and the way you thought your relationships with others was going to work is beginning to change all of those are changing and that means we are we are in the midst of an extraordinary shift and that means, and this is why you know, your podcast is so important, David, is that all of us have to make transitions and organizations have to do that as well. well yeah. There's a lot, isn't there? Because there's, 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 there's the personal transitions, there's the corporate ones, there's the sort of family ones, and, and all Societal, all governments, yeah. Yeah. I mean, education. I mean, it, 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 what's really interesting is these transit, no one likes change. As a change practitioner of you know, 25 years, no one likes change. This is a huge change. This is a huge change in terms of 
What do I do if I, when I show up at work after 20 years of doing something and now I have to use digital tools, I have to engage in different ways, I have to engage with chatbots, I have to think about ethics in a different way, I have to think about transparency, I have to think about who's using my data. There's, there's many different aspects that we're all going through. Um, to Linda, to your point, there's going to be, there were winners and losers in the previous industrial revolution. If this is the fourth industrial revolution, I think what we've got to really be careful of as business leaders, as academics, as influencers, is what about social inequality? What about the haves and the have-nots? Does it become another gilded economy where there's huge disparity? Um, what's the role of government in bringing people along? So I think there's a real, whether you're a business leader listening to this, whether you're a father, whether you're you know, someone entering the workforce, there's a, there's, a, there's a big call to action for all of us. And I think that's, what, that's what's really missing around this topic from my personal perspective is the multi-stakeholder narrative and, and different groups coming together to address this is gonna be important. It can't just be the business community taking the lead or academics or tech firms in Silicon Valley. And that's, that's gonna be the, the challenge as we, as we go through this transition. So how do you, where do you start then? Because I, my, my sense is the awareness of these shifts and transitions is growing greater. But the reality of I'm going to do something about it, in, in my experience uh, in different contexts, is it's only typically when people have a shock uh, in their system. They go, oh, perhaps I need to relook at my life, my identity, myself. But where do people, where do you start? So you have that awareness. Where do you actually start in make, trying to make some transitions? Anything you've seen? Well, you know, this, this issue about it being a multi-stakeholder issue at the very highest level is absolutely right. Um, it's about education, mm -hmm. which we may want to talk about. It's about government, it's about corporations, it's about civil society. But actually, if you look at why things change and how things change, they change because individuals change. Yeah. And that's why you're absolutely right, David, to be focusing on the individual. Because, for example, one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is paternity leave. Um, paternity leave will change because dads decide to take time off to look after their kids. That, yeah. That's where it will start. And then what happens, and this is you can see this actually in institutional change, is that enough people want to change and that builds enough momentum that organizations begin to change. And actually, sociologists have this, this term institutional lag, yes. which describes the fact that institutions tend to be slow at changing uh, and so if you ask who's changing the fastest right now, it's individuals. And in fact, all of us are, mm. in a sense, at every age, all of us are social pioneers because we're all having to change before our institution has changed and actually changing on the assumption that the institution will eventually change. Yeah, and it, and it requires a healthy dose of bravery in many cases. Sometimes it's necessity. But how, I'm interested in how you scale the the individual change. How do you how do you scale it up? Because yes, you have pioneers, love that term. People do it in different contexts, but there's a long lag, and to create a movement is really hard. Yeah. So anything you've seen? So as we as you know, organisations have been you know have been changing for years, and we've helped organisations through multiple transformation programs. Many transformation programs, as we know, David, don't get the benefits because of the people, because of the adoption, because mm. of the business case was kind of very grandiose and a promise to the street or to the board, et cetera, and it kind of didn't drive the benefits. We're successful using that 
insurgent change, getting those radical individuals to come together as a set of advocates to drive that, multi-stakeholders in an organization, potentially with some of their service providers, maybe with some of their crowdsourced customers giving input as well. That's where we've seen success. And I think at, on a scale basis, we need to, as we go through this, whether it's incremental in one industry or transformative in another, mm. We've got to tap into the hearts and minds of those people, those people that are in the workforce, currently you know, going to be exiting the workforce, clients, suppliers, um, even regulators. You know, Bring them into the tent and just say, how do we solve this? How do we take this business model and how do we think about technology and how do we think about ethical algorithms and how do we think about fairness and equality for people and how do we design for that for the future? That doesn't mean that there's not going to be winners and losers. It doesn't mean that we're all going to be singing kumbaya and everyone has full employment, but people need to have a chance and people need to have a voice and there needs to be some inclusivity. Yeah. Whereas right now it feels like we've been very skewed to a single set of stakeholders, maybe yeah. maybe stockholders and maybe investors, and, and we're seeing the pendulum swinging back a little bit now. You actually have to listen in a very different, like, skillfully, listen in a, a very and, and actually invite participation in ways that perhaps you haven't done before. It's not a command and control answer back sort of conversation. And that's a whole different range of skills, right? But, uh, yeah, I'd say those behaviors around empathy and influence and listening um, and, and kind of driving collaboration, I think they're the important soft skills, behaviors that when we say, what does it mean to lead in this, in this new industrial revolution? That's what we're seeing the people that are bringing lots of organizations along um, are, are doing. I mean, being a C-suite individual right now, you are very much in the public eye. And I do, I do agree around this, um, that the role of the leader will, will significantly change. And it's, it's emerging leaders. You can lead from anywhere in an organization. You can be a 25-year-old developing a new technology product and be a leader because you're going to drive a whole different consumer experience. And so, so kind of leading in an organization isn't just, you know, having 20 people reporting to you and having an MD title. This idea that everyone can be a leader is absolutely crucial. Um, I spoke, I gave this horrible word earlier, institutional lag. There's another horrible word that sociologists use, which is called under-institutionalization. And basically, the point they're making is that if you look at the institutional framing in, in organizations, that's that's no longer fit for purpose. But in many companies, the next thing hasn't been put in yet. So actually, there's a consequence. There's quite a lot of space to swim around in. And, 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 I, and I absolutely agree that that provides everybody potentially with an opportunity to be, to be a leader. And, and this is why I would use the word social pioneer, because you know, if you're 25 years old, you could really grab something and do something with it. If you're 40 years old, you can grab it. If you're 60 years old, you can grab it. And what I'm interested in in organizations, and I also very fascinated in how you build collaborative uh, conversations, and in fact, the, the consulting practice that I lead, we, we, can, we can build collaboration conversations with up to 30,000 people, and we've done that. And what you find if you get 30,000 people to talk together for a couple of days in a moderated environment is you find two things. One is natural experiments. Mm -hmm. 
So actually, people are already pioneers. You just haven't heard about them. So where are those natural experiments? And the other thing is you find natural champions. Because one of the problems with hierarchy, and you know this yourself, is if you want something to happen, it's the same old names that come up, isn't it? Yeah. But actually, yeah. if you get 30,000 or 20,000 or 10,000 or 4,000 talking people talking to each other, it's astounding where some of these natural champions are. In terms of getting into these situations where you want to try and break through, transition to something new, a gap in the market, a new sense of purpose, you need to encourage a space where people can, whether it is on collaborative platforms, but also in the day-to-day, -day, they can express themselves. Just anything you've seen on, on the diversity point that you sort of thought, well, that's working well. Um, I, I was thinking about the work of a great friend of mine, Herminia Ibarra, mm. who's a, my colleague at London Business mm. School. What Herminia found is that when people make a transition, they're basically shifting their identity and they're also shifting their networks. It isn't just about having different people in the room, it's actually about the diversity in your own head. Yes. And the way you build that is through your diverse networks. And she found that people who were most able to make transitions had diverse networks because within that diverse network, there was, one, there was somebody who was a possible self, you know, the person you could become or yes. person you could yes. sort of slightly become. So, you know, if you think about your diverse networks, those should be diverse with regard, obviously, to, to gender and nationality and occupation, but also age. You know, I'm very, very keen that we start spending time with people of different ages. And that's really important to our transition. You know, I, it, it saddens me that so many of our institutional forms uh, segregate ages. You know, you spend all your time with 21-year-olds or all your time with 50-year-olds. And I, as a 64-year-old, really celebrate the fact that I spend a lot of time with people who are much younger than me and also time with people who are much older than me. And I think that's diversity of networks is, is so important, both for the individual but also for the organisation. Yeah. That's um, the identity point is... Uh identity comes in lots of different forms, right? Personal, social, corporate, uh, and requires, I guess, space. You talked about how you create some space in your life um, to be human for reflection. You have to get out of the, the hamster wheel in order to reflect in your head as much as also, also get stimulus from sort of networks. Um, I'm curious, however, that it's, you know, about the, how do you make the transition um, manageable? Because transitions are really hard. It can bring anxiety. It can be really difficult um, to sort of work through. Um, and that can be in a new in a job role. It can be moving to a new career or a new aspect to your life. But I guess as you're, as you're making transition, a lot of people are taking control of their life, in a way, their lives. They're not just sort of sleepwalking through their career. And that means that sometimes they want more flexibility, right? Where to work, how to work. Portfolio careers come earlier if, you, if you're in that world than perhaps you know, the, end, the end of your career. Um, and many organisations, I guess, have less of a traditional employee base now, right? More contingent working of different shapes and form. Um, but it's pretty hard work in practice, that's my sense. Um, how do you, in your experience, how do you create a more flexible, fungible sort of workforce that meets the demands of the individuals and, and business? Any, anything you've seen that's inspired you? I think uh, flexibility, or the word I would use, is people having control over their time, yeah. is actually a given now. And the most talented people want that. And if you've built an organization where you're not doing that, you're probably not getting the most talented people because they're choosing not to join you. 
Um, so it's just, you just have to do it. And technology helps a lot. You know, I've been writing about flexibility for 20 years. Yes. And actually, there was a time when it was really difficult to do. It isn't these days. You know, people can work wherever they want, whenever they want. And actually, I think we're also getting a lot clearer about the importance of face-to-face. -face. So, you know, we've learned, for example, through natural experiments, that actually working from home isn't great for people who have got high tacit knowledge. They need to be, so therefore you build it in. So what we're talking about is a much more sophisticated um, set of propositions about what it is to be a high-performing person who also has control over their time. I mean, if I look at my own life, mm. I have control over my time, and there is no way in the world I would be prepared to let go of that. Mm. I get that sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, would, I would add to this yeah. flexibility piece, there's, there's an and there in terms of organizations are social constructs. People want to be together. Like the, the phenomenon of an urbanization and what we see with things like WeWork means People want to get into spaces together and, cre and create and innovate. And there, there are still a lot of organizations that that's part of their culture. And there's a lot of people in the workforce, regardless of age, that actually do want to go to an office. Your point around flexibility is, is an important one because the best talent wants to be able to have compressed schedules. They want to be able to kind of sabbatical. So I think organizations need to think creatively around that. But they're you know, I don't think we're going to get to a situation where we're all gig economy workers no. and all in our pajamas dialing it in because I do think that that, that, that humanization of work will still exist even after our, our life. You still want an experience, you want a place and a community to be part of. So, so we talked about con various concepts and angles within transitions. I want to get a little bit more personal now. Um, so first, perhaps Bouchan, what has been one of your hardest transitions in your own life? Um, I, I didn't give a lot of, um, I, I didn't subscribe to things like mindfulness to that to a great degree until I lost both my parents a um, number of a few years ago, and now I've actually and I've you know actually gone through like some counselling etc. And I actually think it's really important, and I think it's really important to kind of be present. And and when I try and, and when I'm hanging out with my children and my wife, I try and be present, and that means you know no devices, actually there engaging in the play or whatever we're doing in Central Park or wherever wherever we are. Um, that clearing of the head, that regeneration, is an important piece. Um, I also like to run in the morning, and like to I, I kind of realize that that's important for me and the endorphins, etc. And and people know that who work with me, kind of you know colleagues as well as as family. My my transition, I, I've actually had quite a, a number of transitions, but I think the one that really, looking back, made it the the biggest change to me is I was 32 years old. I was the director of one of the big consulting practices, mm. paid a lot, big BMW. And I, and I became a professor at the London Business School. In fact, I didn't become a professor. I became an assistant to an assistant professor. I became the lowest rung of professorial, and there's m many rungs, by the way. And I actually, I took a, I took a, a salary dr drop where I got paid 10% of my salary. I didn't take a 10% salary drop. I actually got paid 10% of my salary, and I lost a BMW. And I did it because I realized, I mean, just as you realize, Bhushan, is that my values are about autonomy and learning. And that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to have a life where I could continue to learn. And that, for me, was a massive transition. It was, it, it was a really difficult transition in many ways. But it was absolutely the right transition. Since we, as a sort of strategist, we talk about trade-offs all the time. It's, it's you can do it at a corporate level. 
we're doing at a personal level is often much harder. It's been an absolute privilege talking with you, Linda, with you, Bushan. And that was another edition of Transformation Talks. Do subscribe to the series. And if you like today's podcast, do give us a nice rating. Thank you. Thank you.